Thank you for tuning in to Man in the Making. This will be part two of the Dokodo. There we go. I hope, I hope that's a good accent. Uh, we Actually, covered, that was really nice. Thank you. We covered part... Um, how they covered were, half. We just yeah. covered half. Precepts. That's the word I'm looking for. We covered precepts yeah. 1 to 10. And now we'll do 11 to 21. I wouldn't really say we covered them. We actually uh, rushed the five last <laughs> last episode. <laughs> well, uh, that's Prejemic from last week and I think the week before that. So welcome, Prejemic, for joining us again. Thank you for inviting me. And happy to be here with you two gents going over these things. Yeah, I don't. I hope we didn't rush too much. I I, I, I think... We gave them a little bit of time if something came to us, but uh, we got a long way to go. So nothing will be skipped over, even if we speed up a little bit. Number 11 is in all things have no preferences. Well, let's go back up real quick. If you haven't listened to the last episode, Miyamoto Musashi was a samurai uh, in Japan around the 16th century and I hope I'm not getting my centuries wrong. I know it was in 1600, um, but that could be another century number if you guys get my drift. So that might be the 17th century. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there's that. Um, he is a respected samurai of historical recording and and accuracy he has uh uh bouts um logged into japan's uh database of actual samurai fights and samurai was a real class it was a real job it, it was something you did and it was like being a farmer or a, a royalty or just a shopkeeper. It was, <clears throat> it was one of the, it was one of the jobs you could have had if you grew up in Japan before the 18th century. And eventually, here's a little side note that we haven't ever talked about. Eventually, the samurai class became useless it it eventually japan modernized and they were like let's not let's not have dudes walking around with swords anymore let's have police let's we have military now so that was the first soldier that was the first military force and then eventually they standardized their 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 force in the country and the Ronin, <clears throat> the samurai, that kind of, that kind of class of, of individual faded out. All right. That person ended up studying martial arts. So they went from being samurai to practicing things like judo and jujitsu and instead of walking around with swords, 
<clears throat> you practiced with hand-to-hand -hand combat. Excuse me for all the coughing or clearing my throat. And I thought that was interesting when I learned that not long ago, because I'm now uh, studying martial arts um, in person every morning from teachers. So I did not know that. I did not know that samurai went from swords to hand-to-hand -hand combat in, in martial arts. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Musashi being one of the greats of, of recorded history, you know, people to actually have a school, a style, have people, have students write things down that he said and things like that. We, we've been going over his work in the past. And if you haven't caught, we, we've done an episode in the past about another work of his, about his life in general, and the previous episode of the first 10 precepts of his 21, written before he died, the week before he died, I think. So given that we're on number 11, in all things have no preferences. So what we're doing is we're kind of reading off one of these precepts and we've got Rokas and Prajemic to give their insight. I'll give my insight as I've studied these for a while now and just see how they relate to your life now, our lives now. And we're finding some of them relate, some of them don't relate, right? The last one, specifically number 10, do not let yourself be guided by the feeling of lust or love, doesn't necessarily apply to someone who is in a relationship. I mean, if you did not guide yourself by the relationship feelings, you, you might not be in a relationship that long. You know, the other person might not feel too well-received, too uh, affectionate. I mean, people need attention, basically. So number 11, in all things have no preferences. This is something that applies to everyone, hands down, no excuses. If you can eventually remove your attachment to preferences, you'll be much happier. Where's the balance in that though? All right, so how do we actually um, treat the indifference to all things? Should we actually not be able to choose when we have a choice? For example, we are taking it in and am I going to take this dish, this dish, this dish, or what do we actually mean by uh, no preference in all things? Can you give yeah, me an exactly. example? Yeah, um, no, that's a good point. And that leads, that's basically what I was saying. Where is the balance behind that? Because we know already we, we have preferences. We, if, if we're cold, we have a preference to be warm. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I mean, if we're hot, we have a preference to not be as hot. You know, if we're overly hot, if we're overly cold, right? We have a survival instincts and those are preferences. I have a preference to keep my skin intact and not have it open up, right? Where it shouldn't open. Then there's preferences in, in people. There's preferences in job. There's, there's things that we attach our awareness to. That's a preference, right? That's kind of the zoomed out perspective. So in all things have no preferences. Now, if you are Musashi and you're a wanderer, 
or your, let's say your, your retainer, the person that a samurai used to work for, their lord or whatever, their master, let's say their, their rich lord um, took five samurai. Maybe they have 50 on the compound and they say, we're going to carry 5,000 bolts of cloth. That's, that's like a big roll of cloth and, and rice and food to the neighboring town, to the other compound. We're going to, we're going to take our horses and we're going to carry all that. Now I need five guys with me, five samurai to take this over. It's going to be a, a long trek. No one sleeps. We just walk the whole way and you can rest when you get to the other compound. Now, if it was cold, you know, you, you had the clothing that you had probably traveled light. You probably got hungry for a samurai. A preference here would mean you just embrace it. You deal with it. You, you, uh, you are going somewhere and you suck it up basically. Right? So, in life, it helps for us in the modern world to suck it up from time to time. And if you, you know, you may have a preference of where to live, you know, and a status of how to live, but you may not be able to afford it. If you can suck it up and live in a cheaper place for a while and save up a little bit, work on getting more income, then you can actually afford a nicer place. So, some people don't do that. Some people succumb to their desire and they overspend on where they should live and they're struggling with just paying the rent and then being able to afford food and things like that. So if they can reduce their, um, their attachment to their preference, then you know, they can have a, a greater joy in the future if they suffer a little bit in the present. So there's that, that's not so mundane, but then there's the mundane with the food aspect that you were talking about, right, Prajami? Go ahead. Can we actually rephrase this um, rule to the saying, be guided by a goal and purpose and not by your preference? Yeah, of course. You can, I mean, really, we've been rephrasing a lot of these and this one is, this one is hardcore because notice how we can't really turn what he says given the sentence, in all things have no preferences. That's pretty specific, right? So other ones we've been able to say, well, he hasn't said this. He didn't say it like that. He really does in this one, lay it all out in all things have no preferences. And, and that has to be, I think for the modern world, for the modern person that has to be rephrased a bit. I think we, we have to shape that a little bit. And especially if we're just starting out on the path of self-mastery, we have to start slow. We have to be methodical. And, um, but everyone has to deal with this number 11 in all things to have no preferences, especially people who are dieting. I work with a lot of people who are dieting during the fitness game. They're trying to change the way they look um, and lose weight. So they have to change their preferences in foods specifically. And the way I would actually think about this rule is that as long as you have a goal, you can have preferences in the way of achieving that goal as long as you actually go towards it. For example, if your goal might be to learn martial arts, 
then you can have preference as long as it brings you self-defense capabilities. For example, do boxing, do uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, do some Judo. And that's fine, you may have preference in that. But let's go a step further. For example, your goal might be to win a fight against, uh, for example, a grappler. And if you are a boxer and you do not have any uh, grappling experience, then you are going to lose it. And then you do not have preference in choosing that, oh, I want to keep focusing on boxing. No, you want to keep focusing on a grappling techniques if your goal is that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to adjust given the circumstance. Absolutely, you have to be fluid. And that's one of the things he's talking about, um, I think, to be more fluid and to not be stuck on one thing, just like you're saying. That's a really good example. I think another example is... For example, uh, the monks that I trained with, they, this was number one in all things, have no preferences, um, not, don't have desire. And in, in, in the monk world, it's, it's and, and I think in the military world, it's, it's being a good soldier is if you're given something, there's no judgment. You're just giving it, especially with food, whatever's, whatever's there in front of you, that's what you get. If there's no food, then that's good too. If there's, if there's clothing, that's good. If it's cold and there's no extra clothing, then that's good too. If there's sleep, well, that's good. If there's no sleep, then that's good too. So those are some of the basic things that we're, given to us and then taken away. And we had to have the same reaction. We had to have the same preference. It wasn't, I'm more interested in, in pizza than I am rice. So today I'm going to have pizza. That wasn't an option. That wasn't an okay mindset. An okay mindset to survive the monastery was, oh, this is what's in front of me. Perfect. This is great. Oh, there's nothing. Okay, perfect. Oh, I don't get to sleep today. Okay, good. Great. Got it. You know, and <clears throat> the weight, I think the way to take that in life is life won't be like that as a, as a, as a, as a, as a we call it a grahasta, as a, as a household, householder. That's what we call it. As a householder, as someone who lives in the world and not in a special environment that is created to mitigate chaos, that is not going to be the case, right? You're going to have choices. There's choices everywhere. And that's one of the things I enjoy the most about life now that I've had them taken away for so long. When you do have a choice, you can wake up and make whatever you want for breakfast, things like that. It's a freedom uh, that should be embraced. And so you won't have to always deal with that. I can control what I eat. I can control the temperature of my house. I can control things I want to wear, things like that. But there are things that where that training comes in. So it won't always be as extreme, but when it does come up, <clears throat> it is extremely valuable to have that training. So here's where Aristotle's law of the efficient, um, the, the deficient excess in the, in the mean come into play. It's always good to have that extreme training because when it does happen in life, you'll be able to find the balance and suck it up. 
So for example, at work the other day, I, here's an, just a simple example. I had a nine hour meeting and, it, and it, that was what I was given to do for the day from 5.30 to 2.30. Like that's what you're, you're going to be in a meeting, controlling the meeting, making sure that people can see, see your screen and you're controlling the presentations. You're the only one doing it. You're, you're online for those nine hours and you, you're, you're in the master seat. So there's no ifs, ands, or buts, right? That's what's going on. And it's like, okay, roger that. Got it. So no preference, right? That's what you need me to do. I'm going to do it. And that doesn't always happen though. That's not always the case. Life isn't always that way. So on, on another day, there won't be a meeting. There won't be that kind of extreme detail and, and, and attendance needed, right? You can relax on other days. So what people do is they kind of, they extrapolate the, the extreme moment and they think that it's going to happen all the time. So if something goes wrong, they think that the mind tends to think that that's going to happen every day now for the rest of your life, or something's wrong is going to happen with this situation all the time. And it's not the case. So if you have no preference, you can detach yourself. That's, that's one of the keys to detachment. And then with detachment, we're able to see into the future a little bit more and we can think clearer. And like you said, Prigemic, if we can attain it detachment, we're not so stuck on, oh, I want a box. We, we can see the need for grappling and we can say, okay, well, I, I won't be boxing today. I'll be grappling. And you can see how both are needed. So it's a, it, it's a long way to explain that. If we, if we have a little bit of a d detachment, right, in our preferences and we can let go from time to time, we can see things clearer and we can go with the flow of life sometimes. And that's what I think in all things have no preferences is. And, and then if we can attain that state of freedom, then our, the balance is sometimes we do get to enjoy preferences. Other times we don't. So yeah. Rokas, anything from that before we, Move yes. on. So when I first saw it, it seemed like an outdated rule to me because uh, the definition of samurai is to serve someone and look up to them. And samurai would have masters and would need to follow orders. Their preferences would not matter because they would have to follow whatever orders they are given. Um, and Miyamoto Musashi was a ronin, right? He was a master samurai. Correct. Right? So I, I guess he probably meant something different by writing in all things have no preference. If it would have been from a samurai who had a master, then that's how I would interpret it the way I just said that their preferences would not matter. But since it's coming from a ronin, 
I guess it has a different meaning. But either way, in the modern world, there are preferences which define you and make you an interesting person. And if you're someone with no preferences and you're having a conversation with someone, then that would be a pretty stale conversation. And it just doesn't seem like, a, I guess this hot phrase. Um, it is hard to phrase, but I know exactly what you mean. It, and yeah, and for those stale conversations, it would be hard to make connections and connections are important as well in the modern world. Exactly. If you're actually, actually, I'll personally compare this rule to a uh, term amorphat, which is love for the fate. Uh, I would say that the universe is not always going to uh, go towards our way. And I would say this rule is more about embracing what we are giving, being given by the outside world. The thing is, you're both right. <laughs> you're both right. It, there is no... The only wrong thing, in my opinion, is if you're overly attached to your preferences. So what he's doing is he's going to the extreme. Just like Aristotle said, you go to the extreme so that you end up somewhere in the middle because you naturally fail at the extreme. So you're Rokas, 100%. I've seen those conversations in, in the monastery. I've seen people... With, with no preferences. And it's if you need to make a decision, it gets pretty damn frustrating when no one has preferences. And someone says, we need to make a decision. Will someone take some seniority here and speak up? And then that's when someone says, oh, okay, okay, let's do this. And look, this can be, this can be in a, in a, in a profound experience of serious decision-making, or it can be between you and your partner or friends, where are we going to go for dinner? And, and it's, and I have trouble with that all the time because it's like, I don't necessarily have a preference there. And it's like, well, we have to make a decision. You have to have a motivation to act so that you can move forward in life. And if you don't know where to go to dinner, guess what? Neither of you are going to go anywhere. And if you don't have a preference for, to eat and you don't eat, you die. So that's how you're, you're 100% spot on, you know, in life to have color, to have emotion, to have, to have character, um, to have preferences it's gives freedom. you individuality. Yes, it's freedom. It gives you individuality, which gives you meaning and purpose. And the key here is that I think this could be rewritten to say in the modern times in all things have have little attachment and to say that try to attain balance in all preferences attain actually i would uh, actually i would say that we should take a look at it from the other side because in a modern one we are pretty much spoiled from all the choices we could make for example you have multiple uh, restaurants we have multiple opportunities to pick up many hobbies but what we should actually remember that there might be points in our life that we may not even have a choice. And it's fine having some preference. For example, imagine you are being at your work and your boss, is, boss asks you to do something. And of course, you may have preference and ask him, can I actually do this instead? But you should be able to be prepared for the answer. No, you have to do this and you have no other choice. So I would rephrase the rule to be more of a, Remember that sometimes you may not have that choice. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And, and something that came to mind was a corporate environment where if you don't have preferences, you are not valuable to the team. You're not valuable because people need your ideas. They need your preferences. They need your, where should we go with this? Where should the company go? And it's like, well, you know, if you don't, if you try to attain an extreme amount of detachment, you won't be valuable. And people will, will wonder why you're um, a part of the team if you just listen and do, do what you're told. In order to move forward with a team, especially, we need to have this balance. One, we do listen when we need, need to listen and we get rid of preferences when we need to. But that's the, that's the dance and the adventure of life is when do you need to get rid of preferences? When do you need preferences? And when do you employ them? And, and how do you do it respectfully and diplomatically? And that's really the, the adventure that we're all in. So in, in terms of self-mastery, usually people go to the extremes first, you know, and I see it all the time, you know, people just starting out on the meditation journey. They want to meditate for three hours every day. Not, you know, they, they want to never eat pizza again. They don't want to go out with their friends when they think that they're on the path. They, they take the path to the extreme and we, we know that that's not necessary. And uh, Rajan, I am still here and you don't have to get personal about that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for everyone who didn't understand that reference, Prezhemik goes to this. Something I actually went through myself is that I was on a both extremes at one point before I begin with all of this is that I was extremely undisciplined, or at least when I was doing all the mandatory work, I was being insanely lazy. And then I actually went to the um, learning more about discipline and to the point where I didn't have any uh, pleasures at all. And it was actually destroying me as well. And yeah. that's when I actually met the both extremes. I'm finally getting back to the balance. So that's yeah. actually what we do. It might happen to you that you experience both extremes, but actually that might be something good that you know both sides and actually you know uh, how to adjust it to yourself. Yeah, I, you should go to the extreme. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm of the belief that you should go too far with, that, with things that you do. You should absolutely obsess over something when it's introduced to you so that you can learn all the rules, understand all aspects of it, dive head first, and then eventually you come down to a, a middle path and balance it all out. But I recommend first obsessing over something before that balance takes place. I, I think that that's a good way to master something actually. So I think there's the fanatical side, there's the relaxed side, and then there's the middle. And I think that in life we go through all aspects. That's the natural that's actually the natural way to go through something is to, to go through every, I think to go through everything correctly is to it, go through it as the, the chaos and order theory to, to go towards something, to naturally fail, go to the extreme around anomaly, um, attack your demons, you know, go through a pit of despair and then rise up and conquer it. 
And I think that we, that, that small package of things, I think that we do that on a cyclical basis with everything we encounter all the time. So I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that's a bad thing to be a fanatic about something because event and, and you, you can kind of see after you see it a while, you learn to step back from that, those people. And you just, you see that they're in the extreme phase and it's like, they're, they're doing their thing. That's the part that they're in. And I'll patiently wait for you to balance out. And sure enough, Prigemic, you you learned that you had to balance out and you did. Exactly, and I have to uh, getting back, to, uh, back a little bit. I have to say that the extreme state might cost you some things. For example, it cost me many uh, friendships and relationships, and it is quite indeed a shame. But at least I got my lesson finally. Yeah, it, it, everything comes with a cost, and the greater the greater the reward, the greater the cost. All right, let's. <laughs> Looks like uh, this, these episodes will, will go on a little bit. Number 12, be indifferent to where you live. That's a tough one. Uh, I'd actually consider it a, bit, a little bit different one, an easy one, because... Um, well, I that's because you're, really... you're a very young man. <laughs> Once you get old... Uh, all right, that's actually true. That will... That will you'll understand that that's a difficult thing. But go on. Uh, I think that's actually the rule that should focus on our flexibility. For example, if we actually have our goal and we know what, you, what we should be doing is that we should be able to adapt it to our place. For example, if I really consider my, uh, my one of main goals to, for example, have some sport, if I'm going to live by the sea, then for example, I can go for a run on the beach. If I live near the mountains, I go for example, for a run in the mountains so yeah as i said going toward the flexibility and another thing is that be indifferent to where you live because your living location might change completely for example you meet some different person or maybe it's about your job for example uh, should i actually at all costs stick to my hometown if i actually have a quite decent uni uh, three hour train drive from my home well no I have goal in that place, so I shouldn't necessarily stick at my hometown at all costs. I should be prepared that well, I might move out to my uni, I might move out after uni to another city for an even better job. If that yeah. provides me many opportunities, then I should be prepared that well, it's not everything is going to stay the same. Yes, we should definitely be flexible and I think that's what this means. Be indifferent to where you live, be flexible, be fluid be able to change and adapt to a new surrounding. When does that, when does that not apply? In your situation, Raj, where a child is on the way and you need stability. Yep. It's a major, major application going on here. And where we live is, is number one. You know, the, if I were to be indifferent where I live, I could possibly ruin everything. Now, I have a certain, I believe, I'd like to think I have a certain sense of self-mastery where I could live anywhere and succeed. And so far, I've lived in, in several different, wildly different places and had success throughout. But 
would I be indifferent to everywhere I live? No, definitely not. Um, if I lived in the ghetto, you better believe I'm going to be trying to get out of there and live in a better situation. If I, if I lived, you know, <laughs> in a dangerous neighborhood, if I lived next to an airport, if I lived uh, underneath a train, you know, I'm not going to be indifferent. I'm going to strive as hard as I can to improve my situation, to increase uh, my standard of living. Now, here's another aspect of this where I think the warrior's code kind of comes in. Would I be indifferent in those lesser situations? No, I would be actively striving to do better. But would I let that area subdue me and subdue my motivation? No, I would I let it, you know, would I let it ruin me as a person, as an inspired individual? No. And I think that's where the teaching really comes in in today's world. You know, we should we should be indifferent to our. Our potential downfall, we should we should always be striving no matter what. And I think that that's what number 12, be indifferent to where you live. I think that that's what that means. So it actually points out to our uh, role we talked about just a little bit ago. We did, yeah. Is that we should have a preference that if we actually want to achieve something, then we should strive for it. But yeah. sometimes we should be able to know that we may not have a choice. As I said, in my case, not having choices, I already have a unique city and I have to stick to that city. So... That's something I have to be ready for. But there are things you should aim for and that's what you should be striving for. Yes, yeah. So if you're, if you're letting the place that you live in destroy you, well, then you're not really indifferent. I mean, you're, you're, letting, it, you're letting it control you. You know, I think to be indifferent to where you live means... Well, take for any, any example, not to where you live, but any situation that you're in, if you maintain your, that balance of self-mastery, which is motivation to act and do better, and then self-confidence that where you are is enough to, to, to get to that better place, right? Then you're attaining a good balance. And it's difficult to put into to, to language, right? Maybe English, it's difficult. But we're talking about two different things at the same time happening simultaneously. We're talking about being and becoming, we're talking about attaining contentment with what you have while at the same time striving to be better. And there's an indifference there. There's a neutrality there. There's a contentment there. And with that, you don't get taken off the path just because you live somewhere that, is substandard or just because your preferences aren't being met it does not change your path of action it doesn't change your success path it you are indifferent to anomalies to um, socioeconomic situations to hardship to challenges you're indifferent to those things because you're constantly moving forward you know who you are and you can the chaos of life can happen. 
You're, you, it, it can happen around you and it doesn't throw you off the path. I think that's the greater aspect of, of number 12 here. I think that's one of the important things is that when you have literally no preference, we, don't, we are detached from literally everything. That's called slave mentality. We are not striving toward anything we personally really want. It's that whatever we are giving, is, we have to follow it. No matter how bad the situation is, we are not even striving to improve it. And that is one of the dangers of having literally no preference. As I said, if we are in a dangerous area, dangerous situation, we should try at least to leave it as soon as we can. But be completely obeying it without even trying. That is one of the dangers of having, as I said, no preference at all. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you why um, the monks go through no preference training. Basically, when you are powered by the ego, you act out motivations from the ego. The ego is sort of the master and you're the puppet and you're on a string and you're living life based on what the ego wants and what, it, what its preferences are. So what the monks do is, and this is similar to the military, or this is similar to any situation where something is broken down and remolded, you, you try to strip away aspects of character so that ego is clearly seen and, and differentiated from that which can be better. So for example, with the human, with the young person in the monastery, you are preferenceless. You are for, for a time characterless. You are stripped away. Everything is removed. You eat what you eat. You sleep when you sleep. You do what you do because someone needs you to do it. And you remove any sense of identity. And when, and in the middle of all that, the training is going in the, 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 the noble and, and honorable character traits are being instilled in the student and in the mind and in this object. And it goes from this thing from the world, it gets cleaned and, and, and wiped away. Stains are wiped away. And, and then that which is deemed honorable and noble and courageous and righteous is, is instilled and painted. And we go from this unrefined object to something refined, to something prettier, to something more, more beautiful, more stunning. And given the, given what we value in the world as the highest good, right? That's the value system we're going off of. And then when that individual has correct knowledge, as a Buddhist would say, and right thought and right action, then we have new preferences. We have more refined preferences. We, and eventually the, the monk is given the, 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 the choice again to make preferences, to make choices for themselves to a certain degree. And it is hoped and the training is thought to hope, they hope that the training instills this new person uh, with, with new values. And for example, a young monk may not be given the choice of where to go on a trip, where to go on a mission for the monks, where to have um, entertainment for the monks, because 
it may be riddled with worldly aspects. But as the monk is rebuilt, and let's say eight years in, I think eight years in, I became a travel coordinator or, or nine years in. So I'm, I'm given now a budget and the freedom to make choices for the monks. And, and the choices that I make are now suitable for the standard that the monks have. And this new person makes better choices and more refined preferences come out of these, these freedoms. So that's the training that we had. And it's actually similar to the training Musashi had because he was in prison for three years and he was locked away in a library, basically in a castle and a quite fairy tale esque, you know, story. And, uh, you know, he, his preferences were removed. His choices were removed. Everything was removed and taken away. And he had to read. He had to meditate. He had to learn about history. And out of it comes this person. They changed his name from Takezo to Musashi. And this is a new person. And he goes out with all the freedom in the world. And he, he's now on the path as a new person. So, that actually reminds me of the these things are steps. Hang on, these these things are steps. These twenty-one precepts are extreme steps for everyone in that extreme state. So it's not that they do not apply to our life. It is when do they apply and when do they not apply. So we go through them eventually on a cycle, and then we liberate ourselves out of them and find the balance and the meaning. In each one, and we can change them as we change ourselves. Presumably, please. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, whenever Rajan talks, he doesn't stop for like next half an hour. <laughs> well, I had an for another part of this podcast. <laughs> of course, no jokes aside. Uh, when you were talking about monks outside being reforged, that really reminded me of the talk, uh, our talk a few months ago. I'm not sure if you remember that, but it was about actually finally gaining enough knowledge to dismantle our own system of values, all the knowledge we actually knew. And it is something that at one point we really did become detached from everything we had that void. And that's actually when we uh, tried to rebuild our system, uh, system of values anew. That's when we actually tried to rebuild ourselves, as I said, from an entirely new foundation, from a knowledge we actually learned. Yes. Yeah. Rokas, well, I mean, uh, what do you, what are you, what are your thoughts? It can be on, you know, number 12 or, <laughs> you know, um, we're now learning, we're now maybe taking the idea that you had earlier and kind of shifting it a bit. I liked what you were saying about the monks and what I wrote down while you were speaking. Um, so being different to where you live, uh, the opposite of that, would be attachment, which would mean you are scared of going out of that comfort zone of your community and your known surroundings. So you are limiting your true potential by going out into the unknown, by being indifferent to where you live, you can learn about yourself and refine your true self. Yes, precisely. Precisely. Number 13, 
do not pursue the taste of good food. <laughs> All right, mom, I'm going to finish my broccoli. You don't have to yell at me. <laughs> All right. Uh, I believe it really like, relates back to the, um, the rule we had on the first part of a podcast, which definitely gives you another reason to visit it. Um, it is to not pursue the pleasure for the sake of the pleasure. And how does it relate to the food is that the good taste of the food should not be the number one uh, priority when eating it, or it shouldn't be the only priority. For example, you can have a decent meal. Uh, but the nutri- I would personally say that, for example, the nutrition or it being healthy is more of a priority than it being well, one of the tastiest food ever. For example, you shouldn't have McDonald's every day. It's not, I know it's very tasty. You shouldn't drink soda. I know it's tasty, but you know how it impacts your health. What I mean by that is that during my uni life before the lockdown here, is that I was often going to the restaurants, to the more cheap restaurants, the student ones, and they were tasting great. And they weren't fast food. So you shouldn't avoid the good food at all costs, the taste of the good food but you should be able to balance it out. As I said, it shouldn't be the number one priority. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty standard there. That's a good insight. I mean, I laughed throughout that. I couldn't even say that with a serious tone. Do not pursue the taste of good food because I love good food. I mean, I absolutely pursue the taste of good food on a daily basis. <laughs> But you actually eat cake like every single morning on breakfast. Well, uh, and of course, the yeah, the balance here is is you know if you if you only pursued the taste, you know, it, he's obviously he's going to the extremes. Why, right? He's he's following Aristotle's law, uh, you know, without knowing it because those laws are eternal. Uh, Musashi goes over the extreme of something so that because we're naturally going to fail and fall somewhere in the middle. He also goes to the extreme of something because he was an extreme person and he lived an extreme lifestyle. And both are true. Like my guru said, whatever truth is just whatever works for you. And it's true because it's a subjective world, right? It's not, there's only, there's only some parts of the world that are objective. And even then can possibly be argued between the subjective state there just be there may be more subjective states that agree together as a shared story than others that's kind of complicated anyway i mean you can see you can see where this goes wrong as you're saying pajamic spotting out that out clearly to pursue the taste of food you know for the sake of pleasure as he was saying earlier and not not understand nutritional values, not understand the consequences of, of certain foods, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's a failure path, right? We, we, we need to attain a balance there. I think we can actually, <clears throat> I think we can actually move on from this one because it's, do not pursue the taste of good foods. I have some more to add. Oh, please, please. <laughs> God. Okay. Um, how I used to see it, up until very recently was food is fuel and if it's good for me i eat it regardless of taste and 
I would think, why waste time making the food taste better if you eat it in 10 minutes and after which it won't matter whether it had tasted good or not because the food will be down you and then you just continue with your day. Um, so maybe that's like the sort of viewpoint Masashi had when he wrote that, that it's just a waste of time trying to make the food taste better and well they probably not that part but the other part where if it's good for you just you eat it and don't avoid food just because i guess what progemic said don't avoid yeah. food just because you don't like the taste of it if it's good for you then you can well look yeah it's of course you're both spot on as always and and musashi is right as well right musashi is not wrong because it's his subjective view and for him it's exactly what he needed at that time. And he's saying, do not pursue the taste of good food because he's on the path of self-mastery and, and like a complete renunciation path, right? Like he's a, he became a monk at the end of his life and retired to a cave. So he's saying for happiness, right? For content, not happiness, for contentment, right? For the ultimate state of, of satiety and fulfillment, we fulfill ourselves through ourselves. Like we alone are enough. Do not pursue the taste of good food and all things have no preferences. Do not seek pleasure for pleasure's sake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on and on, right? He attains this level of, of, of extreme fanaticism because that is what that is the mindset that if an, a monk, a, a soldier, a, a, you know, someone on the path, they tend to be in fanatical states. And, and that is valuable until you learn what that lesson was meant to give you. And pursuing refined foods is important, just like not pursuing foods is important but when you pursue them and when you not, don't pursue them is the ultimate wisdom i would actually say that uh, you often keep uh, talking about how uh, these rules have been taken to the extreme and that's what actually many people neglect uh, is that they try to learn rule learn the rules themselves but they keep neglecting uh, learning why these rules actually work in this case for example, the Musashi taken everything to the extreme. He had extreme mental state when he was able even to tell the barber that he didn't like his haircut and didn't even flinch. And he basically, with this such mental state, it does work to him that he doesn't seek pleasure at all. But in our case, that we are more vulnerable than Musashi. And I remember in my case that I had lectures for over eight hours with literally no breaks after every lecture and tried to finish his topic. And I haven't even seen my roommate that week, so I was on my own in front of a computer for eight hours, not even having a break. And what I did after those eight hours, I literally ran out of my dormitory to the shopping center, just having some great food, just having a hamburger, just improved my mental state because I was about to go crazy. And sometimes we really need to find the balance in ourselves. As I said, the Musashi had extreme mental strength. He was able to maintain this extreme but we aren't as strong, or at least we are as strong yet. So 
that's actually what we should do. We should be able to balance this around ourselves. For example, as I said yeah, last week, I like to follow the rule uh, 80 to 20. The 80% of our food goal uh, is healthy one. We are following our diet and 20% is improving our mental state. I'm going to agree, but also I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that there's a caveat to what you said. You have to be very careful with, with what you said because there's way more nuance to it. Yes, Musashi has a mental strength that is difficult to attain. Are we able to attain that? Yes. But what we're trying to say here is what I, what I try to remind everyone is that we, we, it's good to touch into those things because we can, but we don't stay there for long. So, yes, for the eight hours, you could have been no factor. You could have, you could have easily gotten through it and um, you could have even planned ahead and, and gotten food ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera and not indulged afterwards so that's actually important that we should keep reminding ourselves that we should uh, progress anyway but we shouldn't run ourselves into the deep water uh, going for the master tier skills without actually having any foundation because do you actually remember the literally first email i sent to you rajan when i contacted you is that when i was trying meditation and I think I overwhelmed my nervous system, or at least that was the way you explained it to me. As you said, my tries and meditation were too strong for me yet. Uh, is that we should be able to slowly progress, but we shouldn't often run ourselves deep water if we are going to harm ourselves. Yeah, and, and uh, something that came to mind was we should have the ability to go to the extreme without going to the extreme we should we should be able to attain the precepts without without living them forever so yes it's good to go into those states it's good to have that mental strength and fortitude and and an endurance of spirit but it's also a weakness to think that you have to live there Does that make sense? Yes, but example that going to the stream might be dangerous is imagine you are being skinny, 60 kilogram boy going to the gym trying to go for a bench press. You are definitely not going to the extreme taking over 200 kilograms because you are going to guillotine yourself. Well, no, I'm wait, 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 wait. So we have, we have to clarify that that's not, we're not talking about setting yourself up for failure and saying that you know the extreme is to become extremely strong like that that's that to me that that's actually i would say is the danger might be overestimating our abilities yeah you well no you definitely don't want to overestimate your abilities no none of this stuff is over none of this stuff is actually comparable i think to uh to attaining a like to try to attain a supernatural feat for someone. It's all relative, right? I'm not, none of this. Actually, like, I say, my point is more of a trying to uh, go the wrong way, the dangerous way, where you might be, for example, rushing it way too much. Is it actually comparable to the mental state or is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense to me. Sorry, I didn't, 
I didn't quite. That's totally fine. That's why yeah, you're here. You shouldn't try to rush anything. Um, you shouldn't try to just, <laughs> well, no one can, it, it's difficult to say, to go from zero to a hundred, right? And, and then back to zero. It's, it's, it's difficult to do that. Um, you shouldn't just jump into it. If, if you're going to learn how to fast, you know, not go without food, uh, to go without food, you shouldn't just fast for 30 days on your first fast, right? You fast for breakfast and then you fast for breakfast and lunch and then you fast for a day, you know, and then you fast for two days, you know? So yeah, everything has to be methodical. Number 14, do not hold on to possessions you no longer need. I love that one. Love that one. I, <laughs> Helena and I live that one. <laughs> we try to live minimal. I, I hate having stuff. I hate, you see, you guys don't know yet. You, you, uh, you, you haven't had a house where you could like put stuff in a garage maybe, or maybe you have, maybe you have, but not as, not as adults, but did you guys have like garages or stuff or maybe that's a U.S. thing? Uh, yes, we actually do. Do thank you for the care. <laughs> so it, that's something I see a lot in people: is they have a house and they just fill it with junk. Do not do that. By God, do not do that. Don't have garages full of stuff. Don't don't hoard things. If you don't need it, if it's not too memorable, for God's sake, get rid of it. Don't collect stuff like that. It's, it's not good for your mind. I would definitely go to the extreme here. And I s tend to stay in the extreme. You know, if you don't need furniture, rent it. If you don't need stuff, don't have it. Uh, first, we try to, when we go into a place, we try to get it uh, furnished already without stuff being ours. I mean, we're fine if we're for the first time we own stuff like a crib and, and a, you know baby stuff but i think naturally you collect stuff as you go on through life but but that's fine of course it's natural but try not to just hold on to stuff as you go through life collect and then remove collect and then remove you know what i mean well yes we do yeah that's a simple one. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a lot to be said there. I think we should definitely consider what we really uh, consider. What do we really need? For example, uh, sometimes you are going so, uh, something daily. Sometimes you are going to use something every week. And sometimes you are, might even have a need to use it every single, uh, once a year. So if you cannot find any purpose for a certain thing, then you should throw it away. For example, one of the things maybe not always, but give away or recycle. Oh yes, certainly. Uh, but one of those things, for example, uh, GitHub, you know, of mine, I use it. I think once a week. And should I throw it away? Can I actually download the uh, for example, the tuner on my phone? Well, no. If actually, I am using it at least in some way, at least sometime. Then yeah, I'm keeping it. You should not try to find purpose for literally every single thing in our house. We should remind ourselves, when is the last time we actually did use it? 
because some things might be situational. For example, I don't know, I have some uh, gas mask which I use for a jokes with my friends, and yeah, they're situational that I, I use them. But if I have have a thing I haven't used for about two years, then what's the point? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna go ahead and say you should live your life like a like a computer application software, like uh, or what are the what is that software that just checks when the last time you open something or use something like a recycling software. Um, I've used those in the past and it efficiently can go through a computer and scan it and then determine what you, what you don't need, you know, a clean kind of app. Um, you should definitely live your life like that in, in the, in the physical for sure. And in the mental, I think that that point just mental possessions, mental thoughts, um, physical things. I think it all applies. You should definitely know how to recycle things throughout life. Number 15, do not act following customary beliefs. That's a good one. A lot of nuance there. Do not act following customary beliefs. So, <laughs> I think what Musashi is saying here maybe is do not act following customary beliefs. If there's customary beliefs, uh, if there's, this is how we always did it. This is how we always do it. That that may be a failure path. Does that make sense? So this is how we always did it. This is our, this is our culture. This is our tradition. It never changes. That could be that could be um, foolish eventually, right? It doesn't. It's not very adaptable. That's something we really take note of: is that they are beliefs. They are not one hundred percent reliable. Well, actually, nothing is, but they are many things more reliable than just beliefs. For example, saying that we always did it, it always worked, but we do. We have to understand why we did it. Yeah, and and if if we still live in a paradigm where that's needed. I'm not specifically sure. I'm not sure the context of why he would have written that as an old I man. Think it should be not be biased, biased towards certain solution. But yeah. We might have yeah. many ways to solve one problem, but we do not, we shouldn't focus on one because that's the way we always did it is that we should take a look at all of the options uh, yeah. Just by analyzing, take a look which which one's best. Not by uh, we always did that one. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, don't be biased by just what's worked in the past. Rogas, do you have anything there? If you look at our evolution through history, there was constantly, yeah, I guess evolution. I'm not sure how else to phrase it. And if if we went by just following what worked at the time, then we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what I was thinking about recently, actually, the term don't reinvent the wheel. I think that's an interesting statement because what if there's a better invention than the wheel? Like what if something's better? I don't know. Yeah. I get what you mean. Yeah. Number 16. Now, let me go back real quick. So customary beliefs can kind of, that can kind of be a deep statement. Do not act following customary beliefs. 
um, if there's if there's cultural traditions that should be followed for etiquette, you have to be careful. So don't I would say don't I don't know. That's the extreme of that statement, but there's a balance. I wouldn't always try to reinvent something. I wouldn't always try to stand out. I wouldn't always try to uh, revolutionize something. I think that there's definitely a balance there. I would say the right approach is to understand why actually we have such belief. Why yeah. does it actually work? What is the reason why we do it? What's interesting is, is Musashi does not say, do not always act following customary belief. He says, do not act following customary beliefs. It's a, a matter of fact statement. There is no, there's no sway in that. I would say it's about back to being flexible again. As I go back to the analogy with a boxer is that you are not going to stick being a boxer because everyone trained boxing when you meet a grappler. You have to be able to adjust to actually have a chance at a fight. And yeah, speaking of fights, for in Masashi's case, probably since he made his own style of fighting, which clearly prevailed, then from his point of view, following customer beliefs, so the other existing schools of fighting, they clearly were inferior because they wouldn't evolve like he evolved his fighting style. Yeah. And it was... Uh it was controversial his style of especially a, a, he would never he would almost never uh appear at a at a fight at the scheduled time almost never he would be late so that was controversial whether that was honorable or not you know um and then he would deem the fight already won since he had been fighting hours earlier in his mind since you just talked about honor it would be interesting to cover the 20th reset yeah number 16 do not collect weapons or practice with weapons beyond what is useful i think about that one a lot actually to be honest i i think about gun ownership i think about you know carrying a weapon with you, which I've, I don't know why, but throughout my life, I've carried weapons on me, on my persons as I walk about. Um, I, I do to this day carry, usually carry a weapon. Um, and I think about this one almost every day, to be honest, yeah. Beyond what is useful. So I thought about buying a gun last year um and then i thought about just buying a sword and thought if i'm going to defend myself in my home i think i'd rather use a sword than a gun i'd rather feel the person before trying to defend myself through the air through distance. I think I'd rather be up close. And I think maybe even further, maybe now that, you know, jujitsu is a part of my life, 
maybe the sword isn't even necessary, but to attain sufficient levels of hand-to-hand combat and not carry anything. But I don't know. What if that statement beyond what is useful? What if you were just saying what you just said? Maybe the useful thing would just be having a gun because it is superior to hand-to-hand combat from a distance. So that would be the most useful thing. Whereas practicing a martial art to defend yourself in your own home might not be the most useful way of doing it. True, true, yeah. Do not collect weapons or practice with weapons beyond what is useful. So he just go. he's actually appears to just be saying collection and practice. Not necessarily do not use what is beyond useful. Just do not collect. You know, some people, some people collect like an arsenal, an armory of, we've all known that gun guy. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I knew a gun guy. Just his house was just a collector um, of things that he'll never be able to use. In fact, he's in prison right now. Um, or practice with weapons beyond what is useful. It's interesting. Yeah. I think it relates to the what is actually useful to us and what's that point. For example, I am not going to the shooting range and practice with firearm because we ha- we aren't the board is not as access- accessible with guns as the United States. So there's not that much of a point to me. I am not going to carry a sword with me, so I am not going to practice with sword. If I am going to have something useful, then I am going to train martial arts because I think it has the best way to achieve my goal. You always have your body with you. You always have your hands and your legs with you. Those are, those are powerful weapons uh, for sure. Also, you never want to bring a knife to a gunfight at the same time. So there would be wisdom in knowing when to attack, what situation is safe to even attack in, and, and what is better to de-escalate for sure. And, and as they say in martial arts, the more you know, the more you should actually try to de-escalate and, and never use anything. But that only goes so far in an actual, you know, intense situation. Number 17, do not fear death. Probably one of my favorites of the list. Do not fear death. Well, that's actually something that uh, always talk about. Someone actually tries to think about, but there are so many takes on it. For example, we have a Stoics who did not fear death because they believe the change is something natural in our life. And as Marcus Aurelius says, that whenever the minor particles just change to another particles, why should we actually be afraid of change as the death is just another state of change that we as the particles change to another particles? Yeah. Well, and, one there of the- even, and there are even morticians who are death positive when I even know uh, one of the guys I know actually has a girlfriend who is a mortician who is deaf positive. But one of the interesting uh, deaf positive statement is that deaf actually, first of all, is a part of life is that we really need this end to the life. And the other thing is that the deaf is something that makes this life worthwhile. 
makes this our time on earth worth for example imagine well, Sam, that yeah we're, we'll live forever and you would think to yourself well maybe i actually write a book how about maybe in 1000 years yeah uh, of course um i <clears throat> i would say that the actual so the stoics before marcus aurelius would say that we wouldn't fear death because we are ignorant as to the outcome so it's it's illogical to fear something you you don't know i don't think a classic stoic would go into particles and things like that marcus aurelius kind of stands out in that um modern stoicism but i think epictetus and seneca are probably the one of the stoic fathers of and founders of the thought of it's illogical to to fear something that you cannot guess you cannot see socrates said the same thing um what's and then what's interesting about that is in ancient mythologies and religious thought there's no fear of death because they know what's going to happen so it's it's the complete opposite from stoics stoics don't have a large afterlife um, uh, ideology. They, the, the religious bodies do though. Um, and especially in ancient Eastern mythology, they, they don't fear death because they know that there is no death. So two ways to take it there. Yeah. But as you said, Prigemic, this one is huge. This, this one is uh massive to to even start on this at this late in the show is questionable and we, there's no way we can give it enough and and in fact we we should actually pull that one out and i'd like i'd like to do a whole podcast on death i think that would be interesting and i can pull those stoic resources and those hindu and buddhist resources and then we can kind of go over that and then christian resources and then I guess whatever's whatever's relevant. Rokas, anything come to mind? I'll tell I you do, one thing. Yeah, I do. Ahead. But should I just save it for the death episode then? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So in Musashi's case, fear of death may lead to hesitation in combat, which may result in a critical mistake in that battle. So through not fearing death, he probably had the advantage over a lot of his opponents, which is why he wrote that. True, 100%. And the samurai code, to be a successful samurai, meant to uh, die. <laughs> uh, not necessarily physically, but to mentally die and, and uh, attain a level of death. And... and if we go back, this is this is precept seventeen, but all these precepts are practicing a proper samurai death. So all of these things get you closer to being dead as an individual. And what we're saying is funny because we're we are individuals, and we're saying, well, let's let's try to back off the fanatical side because we're an individual. We have meaning, purpose in our life, et cetera, et cetera. Everything we said earlier, but that's the ultimate state that Musashi is speaking from a 
someone who's dead already. And he that doesn't have preferences and desires and attachments, that is a dead individual. That is someone who has attained a state of uh, death already. And that is the, the ultimate state of the samurai, to wake up knowing that not only could you die, but you as an individual have died already. And that was exactly the training in the monastery that I received. And that is the prime reason that I decided to leave. I was not ready to, to die. Mentally, I wasn't ready to go through that. So, not, yeah, not only does, that's taking it a step further, not only does uh, a samurai not fear death before going into combat, but they don't fear it because they attempt to die every day. Number 18, do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. So, I believe I know what a, a, a fife or fief is. Your own settlement. What's that? Your own settlement. An estate of land, especially one held on condition of feudal service. Number two, a person's sphere of operation or control. So obviously, Musashi is talking about the historical definition and a state the of feudal uh, definition that the settlement that did belong to him that he was managing and was responsible for. What can you say that again? Uh, yes, the fifth in a feudal world or feudal world, yeah, where Musashi was responsible for a certain settlement, but he was the owner of that settlement. Right. Oh, are you saying? Are you saying Musashi had? A settlement that he was responsible for? No, that's what the fief means. Okay. Yeah. Well, in in its most basic definition, are we just we're just talking about land in a state? Yes, exactly. So then, it, the especially one held on condition of feudal service, which basically um, a school. State land, basically government owned. Like the monks had that. We we leased state land. We had a we had a an estate that was leased. So we had a a fife or I'm not sure how to pronounce. It. Wait, fief. We had a fief. Um, martial arts schools in Japan had had fiefs. It was, it, they ran the school, they had the land, but it, it, they never owned it. So do not seek to, to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. <laughs> Definitely not, not something that is necessarily um, applicable to most people, I don't know. Possess e goods. I mean, that's clear. As you're older, you, you can maybe get rid of things, lose more possessions so that you can pass away easier, pass, pass on, and not have a bunch of junk for people to go through. I don't know. Government land? It's an interesting one. I don't really have Whenever much to say. Whenever we are holding the 
thief, for example, who are responsible, for example, for a certain household is that uh, for an entire city, as it was in the Sashi times, the entire city or the village, which he was controlling, he was responsible for, is that his days on earth will be soon gone and he, he will he'll be gone soon, is that the new people will come in and they should take responsibility for this city after him. Yeah. At least that's my understanding. I don't to know, me, I never lived in a feudal, uh, feudal land, <laughs> so. nah. To me, it's, it's, it's a minimalist statement. It, as you get older, let go, let go. Yes, exactly. Yes. You should, when coming to an older age, you should be able to step down from your responsibilities and let the world live with completely new people. Definitely the Supreme Court doesn't follow that in the U.S., that's for sure. You die in the seat. I think that's weird. No, that's another episode number 19 just quickly to add oh please it, it may have had a religious aspect as well where you don't want things drag like holding you down to earth you want to release all your possessions so you can just so your soul can go to heaven like freely maybe like in that sort of aspect yeah yeah I would say that we should step down because we are not as capable and for and these thieves would actually impact lives of the younger people more than Sajdab as he was writing this on his deathbed and uh, would it actually really that matter to him if he had given up a settlement, a village, a town? As you said, he was living his last years as a monk. Yeah. Yeah, so he's he's definitely speaking from someone who's given up but found found the way right found oneness with the universe through these precepts so in other words you could you could preface each one of these statements with you know in order to be one with the universe comma or in order to be completely satisfied comma do not fear death do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. Number 19, respect Buddha and the gods without counting on their help. This was a major one for me, um, being religious, uh, being that is, that is the essential law of Hindu worship. We, we, we worship that which is greater than us, but, we make our own changes. We don't, we don't, we don't expect God to do anything. Well, when I was reading Friedrich Nietzsche is that I seen the two possible ways that religion can impact our lives in a major way. And one more positive way is that the God is our goal is that we are God's champion. Here's something that we strive for with something that we walk for. And we are trying to fulfill the God's plan. But the other more dangerous way of filling the religion is that the God is our caretaker, is that we are weak. And the God is, we are waiting for the God's mercy to actually help us. We are not helping ourselves. We are waiting for support from above, is that we are weak, but we are waiting for our rewards uh, because we are weak. Yeah, yeah, we have that. That's a heavy Christian uh, 
influence their um, uh, Islam. I mean, God is in, in Abrahamic religions, God is in charge. Um, in Eastern religions, uh, you are God, so you're in charge. Yeah. And that's actually an important thing to remember is that we are the ones responsible for this world, is that we might understand that there are higher forces than us, but what we should be doing is uh, we should be able to uh, self-sufficient. What was the last thing you said? We should be uh, able to to be self-sufficient ah yes well self-sufficient because we are attaining those higher states we can attain those higher states so it's the in hinduism the worship of, of a deity does not imply that they're eternally greater than you and that you're eternally separate you're you're simply separate in that moment however med, then the reason for meditation is to attain a oneness with yourself and thus the deity attaining the same attainment, the same level of, of attainment. And then we reach consciousness again, normal consciousness, and we're limited again. So we go back and forth between unlimited, limited, unlimited, limited, unlimited, limited. I Whereas, think the good way of thinking is that uh, we should think whatever the fate is going to give me, I'll be able to deal with it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, being well, yeah, and then that sort of cancels out fate, in my opinion. Fate is in in the Hindu perspective and in my perspective, fate is a misleading concept. It's everything is fate. Nothing is not fate. I think the concept of the way we have to walk through that, whenever, for example, we do some wrong stuff, it's still the way. I actually, I think I told you about the two missionaries I have contact with. And recently they told me, they gave me an interesting take on uh, Christianity. Is that the gods wants us to be good, uh, giving us the free will. And I asked, why do we actually do evil? And that, that was a very interesting answer. That actually we could learn what is evil and what is really good. And after gaining that knowledge, we should strive to, we will be able to choose what is good, what we shouldn't do, what we should do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The, the, the point at which we would disagree is go ahead and ask them what happens when you die being an evil person. Okay, so and they don't the answer have... they gave me is that we'll be able to make the choice in front of God that he's going to give us the choice again. But still, I'm having talks with them, so definitely I will ask that question more tomorrow. Well, I can tell you the answer. It was, a, it was kind of a rhetorical question. The, the answer that they would give you is they don't believe in reincarnation. So they, once you die, you know, you, you're, you're, you're sifted or you're sieved through an aggregate. Good souls go to heaven. Bad souls go to hell. And um, there is no post-life correction right? There's an eternal decision made. And Eastern religious thought differs. That's one of the biggest separations is that we have reincarnation. So we can, we can have these immature lifetimes where we have evil and do evil things. And then we have a chance to make up for that in another life. Um, I don't know how you justify 
um, any kind of eternal decision given a soul makes a bad choice or, you know. I would love to talk about this topic, but I have to apologize because we'll be talking more about the plan of salvation just tomorrow. So I do not have, unluckily, all the answers I would like no, to no. have right now. Yeah, I'm it, not saying you should. Um, yeah, it might be an interesting conversation to have them on it. I'm, I might be um, poisoned by my own biases, so I'm not sure I could even have a productive conversation. Uh, you know, I could actually set up a fight between the you and two missionaries who are training jujitsu who have a chance to test that. <laughs> Deal. Number 20. You may abandon your own body, but you must preserve your honor. Straightforward. <laughs> Could you explain? Because that was one I didn't really have any thoughts on. I'm not sure what you meant by that. I would rephrase this to uh, do the right thing no matter what. I can see that. I can see that. I mean, you may abandon your own body. But you must preserve your honor. That's a very samurai thing to say. Um, it's even a very Asian thing to say. Honor is um, what's the word? It starts with a P. Primary. It's it's number one to it's to uh, bodily. Salvation. My belief is that if you have actually capabilities to help someone, um, you should try to it. If you, can, if, for example, put yourself in danger, uh, the example I would give is that you can see a street fight where some targets just simply picked on someone smaller than them. And if you are training martial arts, then you have the tools to help. And doing the right thing is, of course, helping the small, uh, the small guy. But you realize that you might get your ass whooped as well. Yeah, I mean, you could push, you could push someone out of the way of a moving vehicle and be hit yourself and killed. It's, that's actually the danger. The, so the danger is losing your life, but, but the, what happens after is preserving your honor. Why was honor so important? Because I remember when they would commit sepulchre, that was for honor. Yeah. So why uh, was honor so important? Very, I don't really know how to take this myself. <laughs> why Why is honor important? Yeah, why was it so important in their, in their time? Well, do, do, do we understand the value of dishonor? versus the value of honor. So if we don't understand something, we can look to its opposite to understand it. Is it better to be dishonorable? It, it, look, it, it, sep, that's a great example, actually. Sep, seppuku, I'm saying that wrong, uh, is, to, is to commit suicide if your master dies. And I think that actually got out of style eventually and people were like, and, and samur samurais turned into monks 
because they didn't want to kill themselves. And there's actually a samurai, uh, the oldest living samurai who wrote text down, Sunemori Sunimoto or something. Uh, we'll have to do a podcast on him. He's, he's actually has a book written by his daughter, I think, about the samurai code and, and how samurais got weak in the later years. And he said that they stopped committing suicide uh, eventually after their masters died and it was, it was weak and dishonorable and things like that. But yeah, that, that's a thing that samurai did in order to have a, a, in order to fulfill an honor code. So to answer the question, why is honor important or why is anything important to a people, to a culture or tradition or to a mythology is to ask, what is the, why did that, why didn't they give as much meaning to its opposite? So the, we all give meaning to things, right? So they gave meaning to honor. Honor is huge, which it should be to a certain degree. And um, to continue living after your master was dishonorable. So just a value system, right? So they have a hierarchy of values and that one is up at the top as soon as your master dies. Just to clarify, there were more reasons for committing supposedly than just the master dying. Yeah. Which are, what I believe um, one of them is so losing, instead of losing in battle. Instead of falling into the hands of the enemy, you would yep. commit supposedly to Yep. What's the word? Preserve your honor. If you lost in battle, with, but the battle was not to the death. And then to restore your family's honor. Yep. As well. Oh, I guess, yeah, then that makes sense. If you have a family, then you may abandon your own body, but you must preserve your honor. Because I guess, yeah, that will affect your family, that honor. So if you want the good for your family then yeah that makes sense are you saying it doesn't make sense if you don't have a family then yeah why does honor matter if you're if yeah if you don't have anything to leave behind okay so why i didn't understand it is in our current world you'd think you wouldn't really want to kill yourself over honor our life seems more important than that but there were different values 400 years ago in Japan. So I was wondering why honor was so important to them, more important than their lives at times. I think there's an individual aspect of honor and a societal, external and internal. So if I personally have a value system of honor, then I live my life or I die a certain way that regardless of who sees it right so if i have that kind of um value and i wish to be virtuous then i act out that value and attain virtue to be virtuous is is uh, considered a noble thing throughout history and i'd have to agree um 
do we have, do we all have our own level or belief behind or definition of virtue or value? Definitely. But I think it's pretty commonplace. I think it's pretty universal. In other words, I think we can all agree that living nobly and dying nobly is, is one and the same. Um, to live nobly and then to die innobly would be, <laughs> would be weird. I mean, it'd be a waste, right? To, to, to have a, to have a fun rate, to have a nonprofit for young children throughout your life is a very noble thing. Um, to die, you know, finding out that you actually molested everyone in your, your, your nonprofit would be the opposite, right? So you have to devote being consistent. Hang on one sec. Yes. But I I don't want to lose that thought. You have to, you have to have transparency in both. You have to be a mirror in both. You can't live duplicitously. You can't be one way while you're this way and act another way. So the key is if you're going to live honorably, you need to die honorably. There's no sense in doing one or the other. So they are one and the same thing. Prashemic is 100% with consistency. Consistency. Sorry, Prashemic, go ahead. I don't really have that much to add. This is the only word that came up to my mind with this rule. Is that we are living a good life. We should live our entire life well. So regardless, to me, regardless of whether you have a family or not, you have a soul. You are a soul. You, your history goes on in, a, in, an, in an eternal record, you know. And what, even if it doesn't, I guess that's how much things mean to you. You know, if you're willing to do something good without anyone knowing is kind of a, a, a barometer or a judge for your, your character. And the more good you can do with the less people seeing is actually the high, considered the highest good. Right? So the monks would always say, like, you should do something you should do something good and, and not have anyone see you like in the middle of the night, wake up and clean an entire room and then go back to sleep. I guess I was seeing honor as a societal thing, how society perceived you. So that, yeah, that's the other side of it, right? Societal um, values, right? It's the difference between ethics and morals. Morals are an internalized value. Ethics are a socialized value, a societal value. So, so it makes sense in terms of how you said it from an internal perspective. But what about the honor in terms of how other people see you? Then I don't think it's worth losing your life over 
how others perceive you in terms of honor. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, eventually everyone started to think that way because less people started to do it. It, it went out of favor. So I think a lot of people would agree with that. Now, you know, I think one can equal the other. trying to think of like a firefighter going into a burning building or something you know if let's say the firefighter has a big family you know and uh he sees someone in a fire and they're burning up inside of a room but no one else saw that person burning right but he did he could make a decision at that moment do i stay alive for my family and keep my, you know, societal honor and raise my family? Or do I go inside the building, save the other person and die in the process or potentially die in the process? Um, you know, it comes down to if you can live with yourself with what you've chosen to do, I think... I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to think about. There's so many factors here. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do the last, um, the last precept on the next episode. We're going to spend the whole episode on the last one. Interesting. Okay. I'll be here for another week. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> because the last one is the most important. Okay. So well, I didn't actually we make 21 episodes, <laughs> one for each rule. <laughs> <laughs> it had a great potential, you know. <laughs> we, we easily could have. <laughs> All right. So we're going to cut it there. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And... Uh, don't forget, if you want to study Zen teachings, you can go to zenmind.academy and learn about the uh, Zen Academy I've got running there. Zenmind.teachable will take you to the, uh, straight to the curriculum where you can study different parts of the mind using Eastern psychology, uh, behavioral psychology, um, meditation studies, uh, two months worth of meditation courses, and self-discipline, self-mastery courses and things like that. So everything you need to kind of uh, get the upper hand in life. Uh, and we're waiting on the IRS to let us know if Zen Mind Academy is an official IRS tax-exempt uh, organization, which it should be very soon. And yeah, I hope everyone, Brzezemek, I hope this benefits you. I, I surely benefit you uh, giving your thoughts on these. You have a really clear way of, of thinking and it helps me cut through some stuff I can't see. Rokas, obviously, same for you. And you guys are impressive uh, and getting better with your thinking, which is in, in your train of thoughts. So well done. And I hope everyone is getting better all the time. <laughs>